Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Pastor Cole, and I just wanted to personally thank you for tuning in to our message of the week. We pray that this message encourages you, it inspires you, and it builds your faith in Jesus. We love you, and we hope to see you in person at one of our services soon. Genesis chapter 12, or starting verse 10. At the time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt, where he lived as a foreigner. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarah, Look, you are a very beautiful woman. Husbands, take note. Good idea. Ignore the rest of what he does in this chapter, though. Very important that you do that. Just do this first part. Look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him. Then we can have her. So please tell them that you're my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. And sure enough, when Abram arrived in Egypt, everyone notices Sarah's beauty. When the, when the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king. And Sarah was taken into his palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her, sheep, goats, cattle, male, female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me? What have you done to me? He demanded, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she, why, why did you say she's my sister and allow her, me to take her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them, and he sent Abram out of the country along with his wife and all of his possessions. Moving along into 13. So Abram left Egypt and traveled north along with his wife and Lot and all that they owned. They continued travel, traveling by stages towards Bethel, and they pitched tents between Bethel. They pitched tents between Bethel and Ai, where they had camped before. This was the same place where Abram had built an altar, and there he worshiped the Lord again. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also became very wealthy with flocks of sheep, goats, herds of cattle, and many tents. But the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all of their flocks. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen. Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow our conflict to come between us or our herds or our herdsmen. After all, we're close relatives. The whole countryside's open to you. Take your choice of any selection of the land that you want and we will separate. If you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. Lot took a very long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan in the direction of Zorah. The whole area was well watered like the garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. Lot chose himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them, to the east of them, to the east of them. If you've paid attention to the east of them should be ringing a bell in your mind about where Cain and Abel went out of the Garden of Eden. They went to the east of Eden. Yeah. So Abram then settled in the land of Canaan and Lot moved his tents near Sodom and settled among the cities but the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, Look as far as you can see in every direction, north, south, east, and west. I'm giving you all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. Very important. So Abram moved his camp to Hebron, 
settled near the oak grove, and there he built an altar to the Lord. He settled near an oak grove and built an altar. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. Speak something to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jansen, you are good, you man of God. Everybody give it up for Jansen this morning. Awesome. Well, before I get started, I've made a grave mistake. I'm just going to let you know. I did not wish Taylor McDaniel a happy birthday from the stage yet. So happy birthday, Taylor McDaniel. Yeah. We're both now 28. Isn't that awesome? All the people that are older than us, they're just like, 28? Yeah. Yeah. It is what it is. Um, so let's recap for a second. So first of all, how many of you were here last week or you heard Pastor Katie's message? Wasn't it phenomenal? Yes. Fantastic. Um, I enjoy being out and listening to people preach other than me and like literally just being like, yeah, I don't really have to worry about much while I'm gone because they can preach too uh, and preach messages that communicate things about Jesus that I can't. And so I am glad to have a church and a staff full of those people. So we are... How many of you remember last time that we were in Genesis, we were walking out of Haran towards Canaan, right? You remember that? And we are walking towards Canaan, which represents a promised land, which represents healing for us. Um, if Haran represents pain and brokenness and weeping, Canaan represents joy and wholeness and peace and all of those things. And so... We are there, and the reason that we are walking towards Canaan is something that I mentioned in the story that I told, is because this is not just about us. This is about our descendants and those that will come after us. And we want to give, and I want this to kind of be something that you etch in your mind. We want to give people a faith and a spirituality that they don't have to grow up and deconstruct from or heal from. We are walking towards Canaan because we have people coming after us that I want to hand them something that is beautiful. I don't want to hand them something that they get to college and then one of their professors says one thing and they're like, everything about God that I now knew is over and I cannot serve God anymore because I had a professor say one thing that, you know, if your faith is shaken by those things, it's not real. It's fragile. And so I want to give our children a, an, a, an emotional, healthy spirituality that they don't have to heal from. And that is found in what we were talking about Canaan last week, this land that we live in of promise. And so I drew some phenomenal artwork up here this morning. These are my... These are the things that I'm going to sell. Yeah. Remember when I was talking to you about all those rapture-like things? If they can sell things and get rich off of the rapture, I can sell this and get rich off of Genesis. So then we, we'll just build our own building. So if there are any artists in the congregation today, I need you to see me after service because I need some training. So, but... Where, where are we in this story, and what themes are we about to pick up, and, and why do they matter in all of this? If you remember, I told you that there, the themes that we are going to focus on all throughout the story of Abraham and Sarah is the theme of trees, and you primarily see these come alive in oak trees and forest, and if you will remember back to Genesis 1, there were these two trees that were really, 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 or Genesis 3, there was these two trees that were really, really, really important. And the Hebrew writers are trying to show us something here that we should be seeing by now, that when someone takes a tent and pitches it by a tree, that's not just talking about them going camping. 
that is a callback to the tree of the knowledge of evil and the tree of life. And so because if you read Genesis 1 through 11 right, it sets up the whole Hebrew Bible for you, and then you can hear what the Bible is actually trying to say. The deepest Bible study that should be done is Genesis 1 through 11. Because once you understand that, you can almost pick it up and open anywhere and start reading, and things just start popping off the page to you. And you're able to pick that up and kind of run with it. So we are here. We're in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. And this is what has happened. Abraham and his family, they have pitched a tent under a tree. They have, and they've built an altar to God. If you remember, that's in verse 7. We did not read verse 7 today because that was two weeks ago. So if you remember, that's where we left off. That they had thrown this tent up under this tree, and they built an altar, and they worshiped God. And the next thing that we find out is that they are exiled because of a famine to Egypt. This is actually the first time that we get talk of Pharaoh. But it's not the first time that we get talk of, of this power, this imperial power. Anybody remember the other imperial power? Ba Babel. Yes, that's exactly right. Babel. So we have this imperial power that we're seeing here in this story as well. So the same way that you saw this with the Tower of Babel, there should be something going off in your mind, right? There is this power that's at work that wants to build a city to keep everything to themselves. And so th there should be some linking going on in your mind. Oh, I remember the first time that I heard about the Tower of Babel. And now you get introduced to this other imperial figure that we will later see that is a corrupt politician. And that we, we will see that. And I don't mean that in the terms of American politics. That's just what it was in the day. Um, then, then we see this thing in this story. Now, this is very curious that you start seeing kind of these things happen. In this story, yes, Pharaoh is the imperial power. He represents that. But he's not done anything wrong. If you go read the story, Pharaoh was looking for a wife. That's what he was doing. That's all he was doing. And his friends were like, she's beautiful. She'll make a good wife. And Abraham lies. And he says, that's not my wife. That's my sister. That's what happened. <laughs> I didn't just come up with that. Go read it if you don't believe me. That's in there. And then Abraham gets blessed and all this. Fun stuff. And God shows up and shows this kindness to Abraham, or Abram at the time. And he shows kindness to Pharaoh. Uh, there's an interesting verse there. And I'm just kind of trying to give us like a breakdown so before we get into the verse-by-verse -verse stuff. There's an interesting verse there that somebody's already texted me about that I think is awesome. God sent plagues to Pharaoh. Right? People are always like, how does God send plagues? Like God sent a plague to Pharaoh? Did he? Well, we have to understand what the word, like what that plague actually was. And the only thing that we know about that, that plague is it did not kill anybody. And it did not physically harm anyone. But what it did do was make Pharaoh say, that's not my wife. Right? So the judgment of God, when God convicts people who do evil things, it then turns them to say, what I'm doing is wrong, yeah. right? What, like when you read commentaries on this, because when someone texts me about this, I was like, I'm about to find out what this plague is. I'm just going to give you some, I'm going to let you stop stressing. Nobody knows because it's not that important in the telling of this story. And the Hebrew writers did not mean for it to be that important in this story. But there will be an exodus that happens where there are plagues that are sent to Pharaoh that we will pick up later. That's the first time that we see that 
Somehow, God judges the powers that be to make them do things to let innocent people go, right? And so Sarah's done nothing wrong. Abraham's lie, Abram's lied. God convicts his heart. He then says, hey, Abram, you moron. This is your wife. This is not my wife. And I don't like what's going on in my heart because of this. So take your wife back and leave, right? That's what Pharaoh does. And then we get to the next story, and we see that God shows up and blesses Abraham and Sarah, and then we see that Abram blesses Lot. Now, this is very important. These two stories have to be read together, because these two stories are saying something specific here about God and about how our God makes and keeps a covenant. If you read these stories separate, you will not get what the Hebrew writers are trying to get us to get. You will see that, well, Abraham left and he's blessed. And then you'll turn right around and you're like, hmm, that's cool. Like, Abraham was kind of kind to Lot. And then God shows up again. These two stories are specifically trying to show us something. I want to kind of walk through this really quickly, and then I want to say all of the things that this story is trying to show us. I wanted to do, you ever meet those people that are like, I preach the Bible verse by verse. You ever meet those people? Well, if you do that, you're going to stop in some very awkward spots, and that's going to be unfortunate for the listeners <laughs> because they're going to leave confused. I, instead of verse by verse, I think the Bible should be preached thought by thought, which is not verse by verse. It is a series of verses by a series of verses. And sometimes that's one verse, and sometimes that's 10 verses, and sometimes it's two verses. Here, you get a really unique pattern here because it really is like these short, sweet, simple verses to the point of things happening. But let me tell you something about the rest of the Bible or the entire Bible. It is never short, sweet, simple, and to the point. <laughs> Ever. It is often confusing, conflicting, and leaves you wondering what in the world is going on here. That's part of the reason that we're doing this series as a church in Genesis, so that I can kind of calm some of the anxiety, or our church can kind of calm some of the anxiety around what it means to read the scriptures and handle them faithfully. And so I'm going to walk through this thought by thought, Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, and I want you to, I don't want you to go to the scriptures. If you have your Bibles out, that's fine. But more than this, I want you to see these like... Two episodes in a Netflix series. You can't have one without the other. They're like a finale with two parts. Like, if you missed the last part, you didn't watch the finale. You watched part of the finale. In this story, we are seeing God finalize something in Abraham, or something in Abram, that he will later become Abraham, but we're seeing God start something in him, say something to him, that he will then carry for the rest of the time that we are with our beloved Abraham and Sarah. So, Genesis 12, part one. There is this famine and exile. So just picture this in your mind. They get to this land, they get to Canaan, and Canaan doesn't have any food. I thought this was the promised land right? As they're exiled, Abraham, when he gets to Egypt, he says, he looks at all of, he looks at his wife and he says, you're very beautiful. And then he says, you're so beautiful that they are going to want you to be their wife. And so what you're going to say is, you're my sister. And because you say that, Pharaoh's going to bless us. Babel is still being worked out of him. 
He's still, try, he's still saying, Pharaoh's going to bless us. When God just told him, I will bless you. I'll make your name great. He's still trying to reach and grasp for this power himself. And so he compromises, and he gives up his wife. This becomes problematic because the promise to Abraham is, you are going to have a bunch of kids. Abraham literally gets a promise from God, turns right around, gets sent back to Egypt. All of this stuff comes up in him that reminds him of the Tower of Babel, and he takes on that nature again. And he says, my descendants wanted to make, or my ancestors wanted to make their name great, want to make a name for themselves, wanted to do this themselves. Maybe they were right. Hey, I'll tell you what. I'll give up the very thing that God told me that he was giving me to fulfill all the promise that he made me in my life. I'll give it up. Right? And he does. He's unfaithful. And then he gets super rich. Like, Pharaoh gives him everything. Then God convicts Pharaoh. He convicts his heart. And then God shows up in this conviction to save both Abram and Sarah. Okay? We get to the next thing here. The next scene, God has saved them from all of their dysfunction. And we arrive, we are walking now again. We were walking from Haran towards Canaan. Now we're walking out of Egypt back towards Canaan. Are you seeing a pattern here? You're walking away from things that are corrupting you into a better life with God. Right? And this opportunity for division creeps in amongst Abraham and Lot. Now, do you remember another time that we previously read about where there were these two guys and one of them got angry at the other and so he killed him? You remember that? you are seeing the progression of God's work in humanity here. This is what you're seeing. Because when Cain killed Abel, that was not the right response. Abel had done nothing wrong. But you get into this almost reverse role Cain and Abel thing. Lot is angry and jealous and wants all of this land. And instead of Abraham saying, God made me a promise that he would protect me and that he would keep me, so I'll just do away with Lot. Instead of Abram saying that, he says, you know what? You can have all the land you want. Anything you want, you can have it. It's a reverse, it's, a, it's an upside down version of Cain and Abel. In Cain and Abel, you see the older brother kill the younger brother. In Abraham and Lot, you see this older family member bless the younger family member. It's because of God's work in him that he does this. So Lot decides, he picks out his land, and he goes east, and then you have Abram who settles in Canaan, and when he settles in Canaan, what happens? God shows up again, and he makes a promise. Now, hmm, what should, be, what should we be seeing in all of this? What do the Hebrew writers want us to see? What does Moses, what is he saying about God? Because this says a lot about Abram. This says a lot about him. But what's it saying about God? I think the first thing that it says about God is that God is incapable of changing. 
right? He is absolutely incapable of changing. It is against, it would be a violation to the very nature of God to change. So you see God show up. These stories are great stories, okay? These are awesome stories. But these stories hinge on the fact that God shows up in these stories. Your story is probably a great story, but it will hinge on the fact of when God shows up in your story, right? This is not about... We, you, you have probably heard a gospel that literally sounds like one with, with Abraham here. But we don't, we don't see the gospel that has been taught to us and the message of faith that has been taught with us when we really read the Bible. This is not Abraham did wrong so he was sent into exile. And then Abraham did good and he landed in Canaan. That's what you've been taught. The message of this and what this says about God is, is that if you screw it up, he shows up anyway. And when you get it right, he shows up anyway. So him showing up is not conditioned on you getting it right or you getting it wrong. It's the fact that he does not change. And he keeps his promises and he keeps his covenant. The most dangerous form of spirituality. There's, there's a dangerous one that says, when you screw up, God doesn't show up. That's a dangerous one. The more dangerous one is when you believe that you have gotten it right and you are the reason that God has showed up. That is the most dangerous. Well, I love God and he's attracted to that. God is not changed by your love or lack of love for him. He is showing up and gracing us in all the ways that he is good because that is his nature. You've heard a gospel that says, do right, get right, do wrong, get wrong, and that's not who God is. And we do not find that God anywhere in the scriptures. We find that in our postmodern 1500s interpretation of the Bible. You know the Protestant Reformation? Familiar with the Protestant Reformation? I was telling some people before church. Should I say this? Yeah, right. The Protestant Reformation is the day that we messed everything up. And I mean that in the greatest sense. The Protestant Reformation, we have two churches, one in the east, one in the west. You have theological differences. That's why one is in the west and one is in the east. You have two churches. The Protestant Reformation happens. There's 40,000 churches and denominations now. So we, what we decided that we were going to do at the Protestant Reformation was, is we are going to make this faith whatever we want it to be. And this faith is not whatever we want it to be. This faith is what it is. And our faith is faith in a God who does not change. It is not Calvin's whole thing. Over here where it's like, some of you are elect, but the others of you, like, you're going to burn forever in a pit of hell. Well, how does that, who decides that? Well, God's already decided it. That's what Calvinism teaches. And the church never taught that, by the way. If you want to know where that idea was even introduced, it was by a great theologian. His name is St. Augustine, who was Latin. He spoke Latin, and he did an interpretation of the New Testament in Greek. We have a problem. You don't speak Greek. And so... One guy, years after Augustine is dead, says, this is what Augustine was saying. And it most certainly is not. 
If you read all of Augustine's volumes of commentary and theological work, it's beautiful. Some of it I disagree with, but for the most part, it's beautiful. What we have done, though, what we have done is we have said we can make this faith whatever we want it to be. We can teach this faith however we want to teach it. And to that, I say, no, we cannot. This faith is what it is, and it is that God is faithful even when you are unfaithful. It is that God keeps his covenant even when you break it. Even when you say, I don't want this, that does not change the nature of who God is. You do not have the capacity to change God. If you do, then you are God. So God is not showing up to you to punish you when you get it wrong and to reward you when it, you get it right. God shows up in both of these stories. And what Abram and Sarah walked through was not because of God. It because they were dumb and made dumb decisions. They ignored wisdom. They ate from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. That's what they did here. And then you get into the story of Abraham and Lot. And God shows up there too. And he shows up after Abram has done the right thing. I hope that you, this resonates with you because you either will say that this is your story or you're probably lying. <laughs> Our stories are, it's a constant, it's constantly like this. Let me erase this. Our stories are constantly like this. Choose right or choose wrong, choose right, choose right, all this. That's what our walk with God looks like, right? It is. But what is awesome is that God doesn't care. He doesn't care if we choose him or do not choose him. That does not change the fact that he chose us. That does not change the fact that he showed up to us. God is faithful when we are not faithful. And you see this dealing with Abram in this story. You see God dealing with him. And he shows up to him in a way when he has absolute glory. And what happens when someone is making a dumb decision, Abram knows how to deal with it. Abram meets Lot with kindness. And we've been taught you meet Lot. And I remember there was a famous like series of messages that were going around for a while. And there were all, it, this was the famous title of all of them. There's 972 of them. The message was, let Lot leave. Let Lot leave. You got to let Lot go. You got to let him walk out. Well, Surprise, the next chapter in this is Abraham going to rescue Lot. You don't just let people leave. You don't just let people walk away. Now, you can't control them. You have to let people go if they want to go. But there was this thing about these series of messages is, well, we're going to stand firm in our faith with God and whoever's with us is with us and whoever is, out, whoever is not with us, well, they can just go. That's not Jesus. That is not who Jesus is. You can't control people, but you can most certainly fight for people when you see that they're going to make a catastrophic mistake. might say something that's very controversial here. Love does not look like letting you do everything that you want to do. That is not love. Love is not letting you make decisions that will destroy your life and just standing by the wayside. 
It's not. And the beautiful thing about God in this whole passage here is that when we make decisions to destroy our life, God shows up in the middle of that. And when we make decisions that, does, that do not destroy our life, God shows up there too. But it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. Well, if I do good, does God then come reward me? No. If I do bad, then does God come and punish me? No. God is who he is to you because he is that. You cannot change him. And if you could, you would be God. Well, what do you think about everything that's going on in the world today? People are losing their minds and going crazy. Yes, and God is showing up and gracing them. Well, there's a whole other group of people over here that are doing right, and they're standing in the will of God for their life and all of this. What, what, what's happening with them? God's showing up to them and gracing them. Because God showing up in these stories was never dependent. It was never about Abraham. It was about God. This book is not about a group of people that get it right. If you have read this, no, when people are like, do you want the mantle of Elijah? No. Do you want the mantle of Elisha? No. Both of them were tortured by Jezebel. I'm good. You can keep that one. Do you want the mantle of David? No. Do you want the heart of David? No. Why don't you want the mantle of David? He was an awesome worshiper. He also blew it unbelievably bad. You know what happened in the story of David? Can I tell you? Yeah, David sent his best friend out on the front line to war and got him killed on purpose and raped his wife and had a baby with her. That's the story of David. Now, we don't remember David by all of his failures and flaws, but that happened. That most certainly happened. So, no, I don't want to be like David, and no, I don't want to be like Moses, and no, I don't want to be... I'm not a Levite or a Nazarite. Following Jesus. It's not if I shame you enough when you do this, then you'll become like this. It's dumb. It's dumb. It's not repentance. Even if you start acting like this, that's what it means to be a Pharisee. To look good on the outside, but not be settled in Canaan. And so, when we are walking on this journey, and this is a journey, we need to embrace the fact that God is always at work in us and through us, but not because of us. It is love, and he is nothing else but. It says God is love. And there is no fear in love. And perfect love casts out all fear. So, let me help you. If you've been scared into being this, that's not repentance. That's fear. And you're acting this way because you are afraid that God will punish you if you don't do that. If you don't become like this person, you are afraid that God is going to come and punish you. And the only thing that you should be thinking of when you think in this story, well, there was literally a guy who did not do this. Abraham was not this in the previous chapter, and God showed up and graced him anyway. So did God show up and punish Abram? No! Abram made dumb decisions that got him in a terrible situation, and God did not cause that. We take our lack of wisdom 
all the time, and we think God has somehow now invoked this strange sort of punishment onto us. Because when we make a bad decision, we think God shows up and punishes us because we're afraid of him, because we don't know who he is. We've been conditioned and trained to believe that God is schizophrenic. That when, when I'm good, he's good. And when I'm bad, he's bad. And what we are getting, what is sinking deep into the heart of Abraham in these two passages, through these two stories, what is God saying to him is if you blow it or if you get it right, it doesn't change who I am. And it doesn't change that I made a covenant with you. Do you know what's so beautiful about, and we're going to see this once we get into the Gospels when we start studying the Gospels and all of that, but you know what's so beautiful about the covenant that God makes with Abraham? Abraham never keeps it. He never keeps it. Because we are not the keeper of the covenant. God is. And so when you think about the covenant that God makes with Jesus in the new covenant, why does God become human? Why does he become human? Because he makes a covenant with humans and we could not keep it. So God wraps himself in flesh and comes and keeps it himself. The incarnation and death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is God keeping his covenant to us. When you hear about all these promises, I'm about to really mess with some of you. Just brace yourselves, okay? When you read about all of these promises that God is making to these people, it's not about Israel. It has nothing to do with Israel. Nothing to do with Israel. It has to do with Abraham and his family. Paul. Now Paul was a G. Like he was coming for people's throats. And he writes this. Your father Abraham in the faith. Y'all start doing these little walks and stuff. I didn't grow up in church, so I don't know nothing about that. Actually, I did grow up in church, but in the church that my grandma took me to, I asked her, why didn't we have kids' church? I swear before God and everybody, this was her response. They didn't have kids' church in the Bible. You're going to sit in here and learn the Bible. And I was like, okay, I get it. You'll sit in here and learn the Bible. I was like, yes, ma'am. You get over into the book of Galatians. And you read about covenants there. When you get there, what is so unbelievably comical is that Paul says, you thought that because you are Jewish and the descendants of Abraham, God kept this covenant with you. And Paul says, no. Abraham's descendant is Jesus, who he blesses the whole world through. And we are engrafted into the family of God inside of Israel, right? This is not supersessionism. This is not replacement theology. If the only categories that you have is that you're a Zionist or you believe in replacement theology, I'll give you about 45 books for you to read that show you that when you think in two categories, you're almost always wrong. I believe that God includes all of Israel, and I believe that God includes all of us in his covenant. That is the covenant that God makes with us. Why? Because he graces us, even in our Gentile state. And he graces us in the state when we live in Canaan. He graces us in this state, and he graces us in this state. And what does that cause us to do? It causes us to settle in Canaan. Jansen, you can come on up. What does Abram and his family do after this? What do they do? 
they settled in the land of promise under trees. You can stand with me. They settled in the land of promise under a group of trees. Why? Why did they do that? Why did they settle in the land of promise? Because they were convinced, Abraham was convinced, that even if I screw it up, God keeps his promise. You cannot outrun God's love for you. You cannot outrun God's kindness towards you. You cannot outrun his mercy towards you. And you cannot outrun his ability to fix everything that you have messed up. God is kind of comical in this. He really is. Because sometimes it's like we think that we have screwed it up so bad beyond belief that it is not repairable. And I'm telling you right now, I could just, I mean, we're not going to do this, but I could let people get up here that are sitting in this room today and that attend this church that can tell you over and over and over and over and over story after story after story after story that I screwed it up and God met me there anyway. I messed this up royally and God met me that met me there anyway. And then I lived in a land of healing. I lived in Canaan. I acted like God. I did everything that I was supposed to. And God shows up there too. And the the people who know this to be true the most, the people who know this to be true, they know for a fact that it is not because of what you do. It's because of who he is. It is not, listen, there's no reason that I should be here. There's no reason that I should be here. But God shows up in moments and graced me when I did not think that he wanted to do that because I was taught that there is a God who is somehow infinitely good and infinitely love and infinitely kind and the essence of what it means to be humble, but somehow he's offended by things that I do. And it wasn't until that I realized that God is not offended by what I do here. He is offended by what this is doing to me. And that's why he shows up. I'll share a story with you. I've shared this here before, but I think it's good for this and then we'll pray and leave. When Beckham was like, Maybe like old enough to like swan dive out of his crib. That's how old. I remember I was sitting downstairs and um, when Beckham was a baby, he had these legs of a good offensive tackle, real chunky legs. And he had figured out how to climb the side of his crib and he would literally, like you watch it on the camera, just jump off. Like, not a problem for him. And he is, like, climbing, and so he's holding himself, and he has both of his legs up. Well, one of his legs slips through little things. And he starts screaming to the top of his lungs. And I, like, run upstairs as fast as I can, and I'm about to, like, break this crib because I'm like, he's hurting, He's got something going on, and I've got to fix it. And I'm literally like, I have both things in my hand, and I like, I am, I am literally just about to rip this thing off. And Anna's like, hey, I'm here. Uh, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah. She's like, hey, I'm here to help. He's done this before. I know how to get him out, but I couldn't get him out. And as soon as I was about to like rip these things to pieces. I heard the Lord say, this is my wrath and this is my love. And it's aimed at all of the things that are harming you. So can you receive the wrath of God and the love of God? Yes. They are not separated. They are the same. 
The love of God is the wrath of God, and the wrath of God is the love of God, and it's aimed at anything that dehumanizes you and keeps you from living from this place. It's aimed at all of our dysfunction. And sometimes, is it like hell walking? Yes, of course it is. Of course it's like hell. Of course it feels like hell when you've given up your wife and then Pharaoh gives your wife back and you have to look her in the eyes and say, I gave you away. Of course that's like hell. Of course that's not fun. God doesn't just come and deal with all of the consequences of our bad decisions. But he does come to keep us from being shameful about them. And he does come and grace us with his goodness and his kind and his, his kindness and his love to let us know you do not have to live like this. There is a land of promise that you can live in and live from. And that's what Genesis 12 and 13 is all about. That God doesn't change. Even in the first 13 books of the Bible, he's showing us he does not change. Was the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, are they the same God? Yeah. Yeah. They're the same exact person. We have just read the Bible to make you believe that God caused all of this to happen to Abraham because he made a bad choice. We just haven't read it right. There's a couple things that can be true. Either God does change. He's not the same yesterday and today and forever. Or the way that we read these texts is wrong. So it can be on us or it can be on God. I can tell you that it's not on God. It's on us. 